Because it has so many facets, love is difficult to define. It means different things to different people in different kinds of relationships. The word can be used to cover a multitude of virtues as well as vices. Of all the personality types, us twos think of love in terms of having positive feelings for others, of taking care of others and of self-sacrifice. We may also see love in terms of intimacy and achieving closeness with others. These aspects of love are undoubtedly important parts of the picture. But what we do not always remember is that, at its highest, love is more closely aligned with realism than with feelings. Genuine love wants what is best for the other, even if it means risking the relationship. Love wants the beloved to become strong and independent, even if it means that we must perhaps withdraw somewhat from that other person's life. Real love is never used to obtain from others what they would not want to freely give. Love outlives a lack of response, selfishness and mistakes, no matter who is at fault, and it cannot be taken back. If it can be, we might say that, well, it's not really love. A central thing to understand about us twos is that although on the surface we seem to be offering love on a deeper level, what we are really doing is perhaps searching for it. We believe that if we love others enough, surely others will love us in return. Again and again, as we shall see, we extend ourselves to others with affection, with gifts, with services and many other things, but we are often disappointed by the responses we receive. However, until we learn, you might say, to properly love ourselves, <laughs> none of the responses we get, however loving, will make us feel loved. We believe deeply in the power of love as the prime source of everything good in life, and in many ways we are right. But what some of us twos might call love and what is worthy of the name are perhaps very different things. In this personality type, our personality type, we will see the widest possible meanings of love from disinterested, genuine love, to the sort of flattering effusion of the so-called people-pleaser, to desperately needing manipulation and the dangerous obsessions of, well, maybe even the stalker um, is another form of this lover. There is really tremendous variety amongst those of us who march under the banner of love, from the most selfless angels to the most hate-filled devils. And understanding this personality type, the personality type of the two, will help us to understand how we sort of got that way, I guess. So, although we have strong feelings for others, we do have potential problems with our feelings. We sometimes tend to overexpress how positive we feel about others while ignoring our negative feelings altogether. We see ourselves as loving, caring people, yet all too often we love others, perhaps somewhat to manipulate them to love us in return. Our love is not always free. There are certain expectations of repayment attached to it. 
We are often hampered in our ability to truly love others because our self-image is highly invested in having, shall we say, only certain positive feelings for people and not having other unpleasant feelings. When we are really in the best shape that we can be, we are the most considerate and genuinely loving of all the personality types. Because we have strong feelings and we sincerely care about other people, we go out of our way to help people, doing real good and serving real needs. But if we are not our best selves, we may deceive ourselves about the presence and extent of our own emotional needs as well as our aggressive feelings, not recognizing how manipulative and domineering we can at times be. As we shall see, unhealthy, so-called unhealthy twos, or twos that are sort of somewhat on the lower rungs of this um, ladder of two being, are amongst the most difficult of the personality types to deal with, because we can be quite selfish in the name of selflessness, as paradoxical as that may sound. We can sometimes do terrible harm to others while believing that we are completely good. And the essence of the problem is that we sometimes have difficulty seeing ourselves as we really are, as people of, shall we say, mixed motives, conflicting feelings and personal needs which we want to fulfill. This is because our superegos tell us that if we pursue what we want directly, we are being selfish and we will maybe be punished for doing so. For this reason, we must convince ourselves that we have no needs and that what we do for others is without self-interest. We must perhaps see ourselves only in positive terms, laying the groundwork for, well, a kind of self-deception. What is difficult to understand about us when we are not in our best shape is how we can deceive ourselves so, so thoroughly. What is difficult to deal with in ourselves is the indirect way in which we go about getting our needs fulfilled. The more problematic or troubled we get, the more difficult it is for others to square their perceptions of us with our increasingly virtuous perception of ourselves. We constantly exonerate ourselves and maybe demand that others do the same. Indeed, we demand that people accept our interpretation of their actions, sometimes even when that is contrary to the plain facts. So it might be said that we correspond to the extroverted feeling type in Jung's typology. Unfortunately, it is not one of his most insightful descriptions. Nevertheless, here's a quote um, setting this out. Quote, depending on the degree of dissociation between the ego and the momentary state of feeling, signs of self-disunity will become clearly apparent. Because the original compensatory attitude of the unconscious has turned into open opposition. This shows itself, first of all, in extravagant displays of feeling, gushing talk, loud expostulations, etc., which ring hollow. The lady doth protest too much. 
is perhaps the mantra here. It is at once apparent that some kind of resistance is being overcompensated for, and one begins to wonder whether these demonstrations might not turn out quite different. And a little later they do. Only a very slight alteration in the situation is needed to call forth at once just the opposite pronouncement on the selfsame subject. And that's from Jung's psychological types. And I guess that makes sense. You know, we are feeling types and of course we can feel one way in one moment and we can feel another way in another moment. So what Jung is describing here is the ambivalence of our feelings, the ability to shift from apparently totally positive feelings for someone else to fairly negative ones. And as we trace the sort of deterioration (laughs) or the uh, movement of ourselves um, down the ladder, we can see that, um, you know, when we are at our best, we really do love others genuinely. And when we are sort of in the you know, midpoint of the ladder, we have mixed feelings and our love is nowhere near as pure or selfless as we want it to be. And when we're really on those lower rungs of the ladder, the opposite of love is actually operative. Hatred finds fuel in burning resentments against others. Again, this, this is where us two get quite four in that way, right? And Jung is not correct in saying that, quote, only a very slight alteration in the situation is needed to call forth at once just the opposite pronouncement on the self-same object, since hatred is at the other end of the spectrum from genuine love. But what is true is that step by step, as we kind of move along the ladder or move down the ladder towards, I guess, a form of neurosis, this is precisely what happens. We move from love to a form of hatred. Twos, threes, and fours have a common problem with hostility, although they manifest it in different ways. We deny that we have hostile feelings. Um, sometimes we'll say, oh, we, I have no hostile feelings whatsoever. Concealing our aggressions, not only from others, but also quite often from ourselves. Like everyone else, we do have aggressive feelings, but we protect ourselves from realizing their existence and extent because our self-image at times, or maybe even often, prohibits us from being openly hostile. We act aggressively only if we can convince ourselves that our aggression is for someone else's good, never for our own self-interest. So when we are sort of on the lower rungs of the ladder, we fear that if we are ever openly selfish or aggressive, not only would our negative behavior contradict our virtuous self-image, it would drive others away from us. We therefore deny to ourselves and sometimes to others that we have any selfish or aggressive motives whatsoever, while interpreting our actual behavior in a way which allows us to see ourselves in a positive light. We eventually can become so practiced at this that we completely deceive ourselves about the contradiction between our expressed motives and our real behavior. And so when we're at the lower rungs of the ladder, we can become capable of acting both very selfishly and very aggressively, while in our minds, we are neither selfish nor aggressive. 
although perhaps that could be said for most people. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks that they're uh, an above average driver, and of course, nobody um, is perfect on the roads, and um, the majority of drivers are not above average. The source of our motivation is the need to be loved. However, we are always in danger of allowing our desire to be loved to deteriorate into some sort of desire to kind of control others in a way. That's where we can get a little bit like an eight. By gradually making others dependent on us, we can inevitably arouse certain resentments against ourselves while demanding that others confirm how virtuous we are. When interpersonal conflicts arise, as they inevitably do because of our attempts, shall we say, at times to control others in order to get the love we need, um, then we may even feel a little bit more sinned against than sinning. We can sometimes see ourselves as martyrs who have sacrificed ourselves selflessly without being appreciated for it in the very least. Our repressed aggressive feelings and resentments can eventually manifest themselves in severe psychosomatic complaints and even physical illnesses which might force others to take care of us. Gaining the love of others is so important to us because we fear that we are not loved for ourselves alone. We feel that we will always be loved only if we can earn love by being good and by constantly sacrificing ourselves for others. So it might be said that we fear that others would not love us unless we kind of made them love us in some way. We could briefly be characterized as people who, fearing that we are unlovable, spend our lives trying to make people love us. And that, you know, um, poem by Hafiz comes to mind here. Um, Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course you do not say this out loud. Otherwise someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye, who is always saying with that sweet love language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. I love that poem. I have it memorized. And that's because <laughs> um, I guess I associated with it very, very strongly. The problem is, is that seeking, always seeking this love can create a deep source of hidden aggression in us. And if people do not respond to us as we want, well, we may become somewhat resentful. But since we cannot always consciously own up to our aggressive feelings, they can then express themselves indirectly in somewhat manipulative behavior, which we will then probably disavow. It is astonishing, you might say, <laughs> to see how we, when we are, you know, at those lower rungs of the ladder, how we can treat others whilst justifying everything that we do. But no matter how destructive our actions are, we must always persuade ourselves that we have nothing but love and the purest of good intentions at heart. One of the major ironies of being a two is that unless we are sort of, you know, 
wary of where we are on, on, the, on that ladder, the focus of our attention is essentially on ourselves. Although we don't give this impression to others, nor think of ourselves as particularly egocentric. It can sometimes be hard for us to swallow that sometimes the welfare of others is not actually our primary concern. Rather, our positive feelings about ourselves, as reinforced by the positive reactions of others, is what is important to us and what we, in some way, are always angling for. So, in a very real way, we are dependent on the loving responses of others to validate our self-image, the good and the selfless and loving people that we are and that we also know ourselves to be. The problem is, is that as long as we are focused on others to find indications of our own value and lovability, we can fail to be fully aware of all our own feelings and struggle perhaps to recognize these lovable qualities within ourselves, within ourselves and for ourselves. And so as we go down the rung, the rungs of those ladder, uh, of the ladder, the situation can worsen because we might also fail to recognize loving responses in others. So when we're on those lower rungs, we might start looking for very specific signs of others' affections for us, and any differing indication of love will not count. So we must figure out, therefore, what kind of person we need to be and what we will have to do in order to elicit from others the specific responses that count for us as love. This is why we have another problem that is actually very in common with the threes and fours, and that is the problem of our identities. Other people do not see us as we really are, and more importantly, maybe we do not see ourselves um, quite often as we really are. There is perhaps an ever-increasing disparity between our loving self in image and the actual needy person um, between the claims of, let's say, selfless generosity and the claims that we make on the love of others and how that love is expressed to us. So in a very real way, we have maybe learned to sort of reject ourselves and our own legitimate needs, believing that this sort of idealized self-image that we have created, the selfless helper and the friend, will be more acceptable than our own authentic feelings and responses. And the problem is, it usually is more acceptable than our own authentic feelings and responses. And because our identity is dependent on others affirming and appreciating our goodness, we can become trapped in behaviors that increasingly frustrate us and maybe even alienate others. And so for us to escape this trap, we perhaps need to recognize the degree to which we ignore our own needs as well as our grief and our shame. We can then perhaps apply our extraordinary nurturing skills to someone who desperately needs those extraordinary nurturing skills. And who is that someone? Well, of course, it is ourselves. So let's look at a few snapshots of ourselves, a few selfies of ourselves, when we are sort of at the top, those top three rungs of the ladder of being, when we're really you know, knocking it out of the ballpark in terms of our, um, the manifestation of our psyche, of our ego into the world as twos. And the first selfie is what uh, Hudson calls the disinterested altruist. And here we are really 
really, really at our best. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're saints, frankly. Uh, we're unselfish. We are altruistic. We are able to offer others a truly unconditional, continuing love with no strings attached. And this unconditional love allows us to also love without concern in some way for ourselves and without necessarily being loved in return. Getting uh, a return on our love is not what matters to us at this moment. And I suppose as a two, I really hopefully embody this when I am um, with a client. I really feel that way. Um, I'm not, uh, well, of course there is a fee being paid, but apart from that, I'm not doing this to get something for myself. I am just truly there as a disinterested altruist. So truly unconditional love, we might say, is both free and also freeing. And in this way, we are free to love or not, and others are free to respond or not. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? But as we know, this is not an easy task to achieve. I think what this does is it gives space to other people. Others are then allowed to grow on their own terms, even if it means that they will grow away from us. And uh, we can always remember uh, in some way, again, it starts to become a little bit abstract for our very concrete hearts, that it is it is an immense privilege to be allowed to be part of someone's life, a gift that um, we can bestow on others and not something that necessarily we might rightfully claim for ourselves. And this is possible, you could say, because for the disinterested altruist, we have learned how to focus on our own real feelings and to truly, truly nurture ourselves so that we are really, really kind of getting the love we need from ourselves and not from other people in response to the love we give them. And so we are at this uh, rung of the ladder able to do good for ourselves without feeling that we are being selfish or fearing that doing so will alienate other people. Um, by learning to love and nurture ourselves, we no longer have to try to get love from others. We can honestly assess our own needs and we can deal with them and therefore move more objectively to see and respond to the needs of the people in our lives. Sometimes we see that the best thing we can do is actually to do nothing. And so at this um, place, at this rung in the ladder of being, giving is really a choice rather than a compulsion, rather than a feeling of, oh, I better do this because that's the right thing to do. We choose to do this because we really, really want to do it. And in this way, we are, yes, saintly, <laughs> we are as healthy as any human being can be. We are unselfconscious about our goodness. We're not letting, uh, you know, the right hand know what the left hand is doing. We have immense reservoirs of goodwill and are delighted at the good fortune of others. And our attitude is that um, good is to be done, no matter who does it or who gets the credit for it. And so we're not especially angry if someone else takes credit for something that we have done. Uh, good was done. Other people have benefited. And that is all that matters. So at our best, we are 
completely disinterested in the truest sense of the word. We do not help others out of hidden self-interest because we are directly attending to our own needs. Our intentions and actions are purely directed towards the good of the other person with no ulterior motives. Our disinterest allows us to see the real needs of others clearly without ego or our own unmet needs clouding the picture. And as a result, an extraordinary directness is impossible in all our is sorry is possible in all our relationships because our sort of ego, the ego of the two, and self-interest are not getting in the way. The paradox of uh, this disinterested altruist is that the more we learn to give to ourselves, the more we may actually enjoy giving to others. The more revered we are, the more humble we become. The more power people give us in their lives, the less we want. The less we look for love from others, the more others love us. Furthermore, virtue is not simply its own reward. The enduring reward of virtue is, I guess, happiness. And so we are happy to be good and are filled with an outflowing joy. We are in this state among the most radiant human beings one can hope to find in life, radiating the inexpressible happiness which comes from truly being good and doing good for others. And that's a great feeling. We know how that feels. Few people rise to this level of sustained altruistic love, and those who do usually do not advertise it. Those few who do come as close to being saints as anyone uh, as anyone becomes, although they are too humble to think of themselves in this way, they are essentially what we would call saints. These people would be, I guess, embarrassed by any suggestion that they are saints because, good as they are, they know perfectly well that their virtue does not truly belong to them. And besides, their sights are no longer on their own qualities. And in this way, I guess, we can show the world um, an example of the heights to which the human animal can really, really attain, right? We have been victorious in the never-ending battle to transcend the ego, to make room for both the self and the other. We have truly learned at that moment how to love. Okay, here's another snapshot from those upper rungs. And this is of the caring person. Even if we do not live at this high peak of saintly, disinterested altruism all of the time, we can remain personally concerned for the welfare of others, emotionally attuned to other people. Um, we are the most empathetic of the personality types. We really are. Let's give ourselves a pat on the back for that. We really are. Empathy is the quality of being able to feel with another person, to experience his or her feelings as if they were our own. Empathy makes the feelings of others our feelings, their needs, our needs. And being highly empathetic, we too are able to put ourselves in the place of others, feeling compassion and concern for them. We have the strength to empathize with those who suffer. 
For example, when we hear about a disaster on TV, our hearts go out to those who have been affected. Um, the marital or job problems of our friends or our family touch us deeply. Just knowing that someone else knows how you feel, that someone weeps with you, cares about you, takes your needs seriously and will do all he or she can to help you is itself a source of great comfort for people in times of trouble. We know this and this is also where we get great value and great appreciation in our lives. Appreciation being that double-edged sword though. So at this level we are you could say, yeah, pretty extraordinary people. But we have maybe lost some of the freedom of that disinterested altruist. And this is because we have begun to shift our focus more towards others and perhaps lose some contact with our own feelings. We can also begin to see ourselves as people who have good feelings for others rather than simply allowing whatever feelings are present to be felt. So at this point, our self-consciousness is still fairly benign and much good still comes from us because most of our positive feelings for others remains genuine and deep. Because our emotions are engaged so strongly and so positively for others, we are aware of ourselves as empathetic, caring people. Our hearts, rather than our heads, are our main faculty. And because we are led by our hearts, we do not judge others or concern ourselves with keeping a strict account of rights and wrongs. We see ourselves as good because, in fact, we are good. We rightly see ourselves as loving people because, in fact, we are loving people. We are well-meaning, sincere, and warm-hearted, and we recognize these strengths in ourselves. Moreover, realizing that we sincerely care for others gives us an enormous amount of self-confidence, allowing us to venture where angels fear to tread. Our confidence, however, is not primarily in ourselves, but in the value of the goodness that we so deeply believe in. It almost goes without saying, but for us, we are extremely generous <laughs> at this um, point uh, uh, of the the ladder of uh, at this point in the ladder of being and one of the most important forms of our generosity is this generosity of spirit which is not primarily a material generosity um, since you know we could be uh, poor or of modest means but still have that generosity but more an attitude towards others we are charitable and we put a positive interpretation on most things, emphasizing the good we find in others. And this is, in a sense, an irrational gift because it does go beyond reason. We do not find fault with others even when, let's face it, there is fault to be found. And this is not because we are not perceptive, far from it, but because we are much more attracted, shall we say, to what is positive and we want to support those values. We are able to, let's say, love the sinner and not the sin, which is a saving distinction. But of course, it can also, as we will see later on, trap us in relationships with, <laughs> for want of a better word, sinners. Well, we're all sinners. Um, and um, cause us in some way to really overlook or deny our own needs. So here's the third portrait from the upper rungs of the two ladder. And this is that of the nurturing helper. So 
Often, as twos, we are likely to express how much we love other people. Our strong, positive feelings for others naturally impels us into action. Service, therefore, is sort of the keynote at this stage, and we can become very giving people who take great satisfaction in helping others in many, many tangible ways. We serve those who are in need and cannot take care of themselves. You know, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, volunteering for philanthropic work, using whatever means are at our disposal to help others. And we do this in our personal relationships a lot. We reach out to people, giving substantial help even if it means going out of our way when it is inconvenient or difficult to do so. We can be exceptionally thoughtful about the material, psychological, emotional, or spiritual needs of others. We are, let's face it, extraordinary sometimes in crisis situations because others know that they can really count on us. We are the kind of people who you can call in the middle of the night for help. We are generous with our time, with our attention, with our money and our other resources, self-sacrificial in the best sense of the word. Indeed, people seek us out because of this unique mixture of personal concern and practical helpfulness. We have that in spades. Of course, we do not spend all of our time running around looking after other people's needs. Nonetheless, we do experience in ourselves a sense of bounty that we perhaps enjoy sharing with others. And there are many ways that we can express this beyond overt caretaking. Um, we like to share whatever we have, and this can include, you know, our talents like singing or performing, cooking, personal possessions, or simply our time. We are gratified by being able to give something of value to others and seeing others grow. All of this is possible because when we are at those sort of, you know, higher rungs of being on the on the two ladder, we do have a clear sense of our own boundaries and our own needs. And while we are sincerely interested in helping others in whatever ways we can, we know our physical and emotional limits and we try not to exceed them. While attending to others, we also attend to ourselves. While looking after someone else's health, we also look after our own health. While counselling others uh, to get enough rest and recreation, um, as I am often doing, we make sure that we do this too, ideally. And of course, these three, uh, three um, upper rungs are also the ideal rungs. Let's not get too... Um, down on ourselves if um, these feel a little bit out of reach uh, at times or even uh, often, quite possibly. So having clear boundaries enables us to have enough energy to enjoy our lives, which is what we want to do no matter what type we are. Uh, we can make stimulating companions because we are good listeners. Yes, we are emotionally attuned to others and we have a genuine sense of fun. And because we are realistic and honest about our needs and limitations, we are much more free and relaxed about our relationships. We also have uniformly good effects on people because our love is so particular. We make others feel that someone really sees them and cares about them as an individual. We divine the good in others and, armed with this knowledge, we are able to encourage and praise others sincerely, uplift spirits and instill confidence. We build self-esteem because we give people the attention and appreciation that they need to thrive. Without trying to do so, we exert 
an immense influence over other people because few things in life are really as powerful as instilling the feeling in another person that someone good cares about you, believes in you, and is on your side. So expecting good from others and appreciating what they do nurtures self-confidence and creates a climate of expectation which enables others to do wonderful things. We then are really the archetype of the good parent, acting as parent figures in the best possible sense to everyone we meet. Good parents want what is best for their children. We actively look out for their welfare. Similarly, we actively look out for the welfare of others, nurturing them, encouraging them and empowering them to grow and discover their own strengths. In a word, we are the embodiment of of, um, charity in action. We may be saints or not quite saints, but in either case, we try, God damn it, we do try to be caring, loving and helpful. And this is our ideal, and to one degree or another, we do attain it when we are on those three, you know, best, top, most shiny, gleamy, um, well-polished rails, rungs of the two ladder of being. Okay, so (laughs) let's move now into more, um, I don't know, at some level, attainable rungs, um, which is not to say that those upper rungs are not attainable. We have experienced them as twos, um, and we experience them quite often. But those are more, to some extent, sublime states, and it's good to know that we can reach for them. But yeah, we're not always there, are we? We're often more on these kind of the, the, the middle rungs of the ladder. That's where we spend most of our lives, probably, um, in our ego manifestations, ego cages, as I sometimes like to call them, um, somewhat um, cynically, um, or even realistically. Uh, so let's look at some of those average rungs of the ladder, and um, and let's look at three of those. And the first one we're going to look at is the effusive friend. So while we are genuinely good people, we are good people, um, as effusive friends, perhaps we do less real good, whatever that means. I guess in this way we're talking about kind of um, social good or pro-social good, right? Whilst talking more about our feelings and good intentions. Okay, so in this way you could say that sort of some reverse gear in our psyches has become engaged and the attention that we previously directed towards others starts to become more focused on ourselves. Of course it does. This is the ego. The ego is a self-focused mechanism. And so our attention shifts away from doing real good, in inverted commas, for others, to seeking reassurance that others love us and have good feelings about us. So we might begin to fear that we are not doing enough for others to really win them over. And we might begin to equate love with personal intimacy and closeness. And of course, we do this for a good reason, because often that is how we experience love and how other people experience love. And while intimacy is certainly an essential quality of any good relationship, we might begin focusing on it to the exclusion of many other things and sometimes in situations where it may be inappropriate. 
Nonetheless, we do want people to notice how much we care and how deeply we feel for others. And in conversations, we like to talk to people about the relationships um, that we share as if to remind the other person of how special this relationship is. You know, isn't it wonderful how close we are? And in truth, we are perhaps always trying to get closer to others and to convince ourselves that the others, that other people really want us around. And again, this is at some level universal, but I think it's particularly true for us twos. So what might be happening here um, is that we may still be helpful and generous, but we start to be a little bit more interested in being seen as a generous person. We are friendly and talkative and we want to be on good terms with everyone we encounter, but we can also be fairly sentimental, you know, wearing our hearts and our sleeves unapologetically, unapologetically, unapologetically telling everyone how we feel and we have a knack for meeting people, um, sort of instantly regarding them as friends rather than acquaintances. And we can even be tactile. We are giving, you know, giving others a sort of reassuring squeeze of the hand or arm around the shoulder. We like to be physically close, kissing, touching, hugging on natural extensions of our outgoing effusive style. Um, And this all helps us to become these wonderful people pleasers. Uh, Let's not, you know, let's not sort of be down or get down on our average selves. Yes, we are wonderful people pleasers, gratifying others so that others will love us in return. Although we might occasionally have (laughs) a little bit of difficulty admitting to this motive, you know, like, yeah, I'm I'm doing all this because I there is something I'm wanting here from you. Yeah, we are convinced usually, I am anyway, that we simply want to love others and to express how much we like people. But when we overstate our appreciation of others, maybe, I don't know, a certain form of genuine appreciation might kind of shift more into flattery. And the purpose of that is not appreciation of the other person, but that the flatterer be appreciated for their praise. So, On this rung of the ladder, we are confident that we have something valuable to share with others. And indeed we do. We have ourselves, our love and attention. And we are completely convinced of the sincerity of our goodwill towards everyone, you know, putting a favorable interpretation on everything we do. However, we are maybe not so good as as sort of faultlessly well-intentioned. Um, what is happening here is that the ego is starting to um, become more prominent or take on more of a shape, um, that sort of two, two ego, um, even though we might not let that show to other people and certainly not to ourselves. And maybe for some twos, uh, religion plays an important part in our lives. Um, uh, we may be sincerely religious and and want to do good for others because of our religious convictions. Um, However, religion is also very congenial to the way that maybe we might view ourselves, um, whatever your religion is here. I mean, my religion is the Enneagram, so <laughs> so um, uh, I guess 
you know, we can use our religion in some way to reinforce our self-image of being well-intentioned and giving credibility to our assertions of sincerity and how wonderful we are. Um, and, and religion also gives us uh, a vocabulary and a respected value system in which we can talk about love and friendship and self-sacrifice and goodness and what we do for others and how we feel about others, um, you know, which are all of our favorite topics. And on another level, um, we might develop a connection with religion, whatever our religion is, um, or, or maybe even the sort of focus on, the, on psychic abilities, because these can become very valuable gifts that we can then bestow upon others. This is why so many twos um, go into the counseling and the psychotherapy profession and other helping professions. So many twos are nurses, um, because uh, we can take these uh, belief systems about doing good altruistically for others and really put them into good practical use. Also, religion or psychic or psychological abilities um, sort of become value-added aspects, we might say, of our uh, personality or our persona, which others may be attracted to. Um, if I can talk in a way about something that is um, psychologically truthful or accurate or really has resonance for another person, they're like, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. Tell me more, tell me more, right? There is a sense of being valued and maybe even a sense, I would hope in, my, uh, in the depths of my two heart, of being loved just that little bit more. Also, religion puts us on the side of angels, you might say, so that few people, including, of course, ourselves, would perhaps dare to question our motives. Religion, um, whatever religion it is here, it doesn't have to be a, um, think about your religions, um, those religions that really configure to your greatest um, values. Uh, religions can also appeal to our pride. You know, we would secretly like to be thought of in some way as kind of savior figures, uh, miracle workers, rescuers. We have fantasies of our love conquering all, uh, of, you know, kind of killing the other person with kindness. I have used that phrase many a time. And of winning, uh, winning over others through sheer goodness. And all religious themes can make us feel good about ourselves and there's nothing wrong with that at all it's just a question of being aware of how the religion works in our life or the um, value system works in our life uh, I guess so the genuine appreciation of others um, you could say at this rung of the ladder is starting to deteriorate into the beginning of a kind of egocentricity which draws attention to itself in very, very subtle and very lovely ways, right? Um, in all circumstances, we twos assert the depth of our feelings and how sincerely well-intentioned we are. And while our fine words seem to be for other ben others' benefits, right, we are also maybe trying to get others to acknowledge our goodness, 
you know, I'm probably even doing this here. Look, I'm putting out here some useful information that is going to help other twos. And aren't I such a good and, you know, altruistic, um, wonderful sort of therapist? And in some way, I am. Of course I am. But I am also doing this for myself. I'm also doing this because I want to really, really connect with this material. And I want to really um, use it to feed my soul. Um, and so... It's good to bear that in mind. It's good to kind of balance those two out. What can happen, though, in doing so, is that we might begin to cultivate friendships, giving more and more attention to people whose love and appreciation we want to win and encouraging uh, them to reveal their inmost thoughts and intimate details about their personal lives. This is not a problem at all when, of course, one is working as a psychotherapist. This is why it works so well to be a two in psychotherapy because this is the place to do it. Um, and, And that's why, I guess, twos can be so comfortable in that position because this is the place where, yes, others are willing to reveal their inmost thoughts and the intimate details about their personal lives. And um, and even though we might not do so as much, apart from the odd self-disclosure, to um, show empathy and to show a kind of form of mirroring and to show a sense of, yes, me too, I'm with you, all of those wonderful things that us twos can do. Um There is also the sense that uh, when we do this, let's say, outside, more kind of formal or ritualized uh, perspectives like psychotherapy, you know, we are seeking, perhaps as twos, we're always seeking to be that special friend, the confidant, the person to go to when another person is troubled. Because we believe that being such a person would surely mean that we are lovable. And in some way, this is true. I mean, this is the logic of the heart, but it is there is a logic to that. Good people are loved more. <laughs> I mean, what can you say, right? You can't really argue with that, even though it can become a bit of a trap for ourselves. So, and, and, and we see this, you know, many people like the attention uh, that we can give them. And we know this, our ability to lavish praise and flattery and and just genuine care and concern, you know, not, not the sort of ersatz uh, candy floss stuff, but the genuine stuff, that is also a source of power. And it is particularly a source of power over those are, who are hungry for approval. Um, and I guess we need to be aware of that power and how we use that power as the uh, um, as the effusive friend uh, uh, on that rung of the ladder. Okay, another of those uh, more middle rungs of the ladder where we can often find ourselves as twos, and this is um, what Hudson and Rizzo call the possessive intimate. Um, and of course, given our interpersonal talents, it is not unusual for us to gather a circle of people around ourselves, people who become maybe increasingly dependent on us. Um, And in some way, a lot of twos uh, will create an extended family or a community with ourselves sort of at the center. Again, 
as a kind of parental figure so that others will regard us as an important figure in their lives. And we are important figures in their lives. Um, We envelop people, making others feel that they are both part of a family and, of course, also indebted to us for being invited to join in. At this stage, we are, we are all like the sort of stereotypical Jewish mother. And I have a uh, SB2 as a mother who, I wouldn't say is the stereotypical Jewish mother, but she is Jewish, she is a mother, and she is a two, so <laughs> she does have these qualities, right? And the stereotypical Jewish mother, of course, is the mother who cannot do enough for others, although, of course, you know... Uh, all religions and sexes are equally inclined to this behavior. You don't have to be Jewish or a mother. Um, I am, you know, not a mother, but I have all of these qualities too. And in this way, we're, we're, we're sort of forever feeding people, both literally and emotionally. Um, and, you know, few things you could say are as disarming as a seemingly sincere interest in oneself And we are never more effective than with those who, for their own psychological reasons, are sort of searching for a mother's love. Because we can give that love. We see the searcher. We see the one who is searching for love. And we say, I can give you that love, right? And because of this, we are maybe even on the lookout for people who will need us. But this can set up a problem. Because... We are, since we are taking care of others, in some way maybe to get appreciation and in the hope of eventually getting our own needs satisfied in return, we may at times um, gravitate towards sort of dysfunctional, maybe even emotionally needy people, and um, which makes the chances of getting uh, sufficient feedback or, you know, really the love we also need somewhat remote and therefore we might end up being drawn to the people who will be least able to reciprocate our attention Um, and maybe you have a couple of of those people in your life. This would not be an issue if it were not for the fact that we twos are often looking for specific signs of appreciation from the objects of our affection. And in some very tragic way, you know, we may even begin to fear that the people we care about will love others more than us. And we might even believe that that we must be needed by others in order for them to stay in our lives. And to this end, we would perhaps increasingly start looking for ways to be needed by the people we love. Our superego does not allow us to acknowledge this necessarily, so we may continue to convince ourselves that we are only motivated by selfless love, but is it really selfless in that regard? And of course, you know, we may also ask, maybe from a more cynical four perspective, is any love truly selfless? Um, Which is why maybe we keep those to the more upper rungs of the ladder to some extent, right? Of course, love remains our supreme value, and we want to love everyone. Love becomes our excuse, our rationale, our every motive, our only goal in life. And if there is any type which is a sort of, I don't know, Johnny one note about anything, it is us, twos, (laughs) talking about love. But it is also clear that when we talk about love, what we really mean is 
at some level, our love, right? The love that we can give, which is, and often it is, the solution to everybody's needs. So we might even start to see everyone as, even if they're not necessarily, we might start to see them as sort of needy children, hungry for love and attention, which we begin to press on others, whether they seek it or not. We might hover, we might interfere, we might give unrequested advice, intruding into situations, imposing ourselves on people, sort of making pests of ourselves in the name of self-sacrificial love. Oh, how many times have I done this? And and the difficulty is that we are we are self-sacrificial to a fault, you know, martyrs in a way who invent needs to fulfill so that we can then assume a greater position of importance to others. In short, we need to be needed. Um, and again, let's just remember this is a facet of humanity. Uh, we're deeply social creatures. Of course, we um, are all interconnected and we all need to be needed. But I guess uh, the the beauty or the clarity of personality types is that it sort of shows us where we overegg the pudding in certain respects, and every type overeggs the pudding in this way. So at this point, we may even become kind of busybodies, maybe even intrusively nosing into other people's affairs, um, and perhaps even adopting the role of kind of loving parent, even to our peers, you know, making it our business to solve everyone's problems, from matchmaking to finding a job to giving advice about decorating an apartment, because we want others to need us, right, our love, our advice, our approval, our guidance. We don't hesitate, do we, to jump into people's lives to help out if we can. And others can sometimes experience this as meddling and even begin to distance themselves from us, the very thing we want to avoid. And then we may even <laughs> renew um, and, and exert ourselves even more in that um, giving of love whilst the other person is in retreat. Again, how many times have I done this? The intimate conversation you could say, of those sort of upper rungs has deteriorated somewhat into sort of gossip, which serves a way to let others know how many friends we have and how close the relationship with them is. We might even talk a lot about our friends and about friendships, um, you know, and we also think nothing to some extent about asking very pointed personal questions. Again, you know, this is great, great thing about psychotherapy is that this is the place to do it. Uh, this is where my sort of two soul um, can really feel comfortable and, and people are willing and open for that. But um, as soon as I step out of that therapy room, I find that that's not the case. Most people are usually too embarrassed um, or too dependent on us to rebuff our inquiries. And the problem is, is that then this flow of information can become a little bit one-sided. We might pry more out of others than uh, we reveal about ourselves. Um, after all, you know, we don't have the problems. We are here to help you solve your problems. Um, and that's where we can, again, become a little bit trapped in our two-ness. We might insinuate ourselves into other people's lives very quickly um, and others might find it a little bit difficult to pull away. 
Unfortunately, we can also begin to inflict our ego agenda on others, right, who in some way have to, I don't know, again, this is like the children of the um, over-dominant Jewish mother who have to sort of bear the burden of our love uh, or, or really of our need to feel loved. And not surprisingly, our intrusiveness in this way will have negative effects on the very people that we want to love and we believe we do love. You know, this is again archetypal. The smothering mother's love can suffocate. This is not the case with my mother. Um, She's very good at that. But because our love is so relentlessly self-sacrificial, the beneficiaries of it are constrained from sort of complaining about the quality of our love. It's like, well, we're getting so much love. um, I better just sort of, you know, finish my plate, uh, eat it all up. And since we are sacrificing ourselves for others, we can begin to feel that we maybe have a certain kind of, I don't know, proprietary right over them. We can become a little bit possessive. We can become jealous of our friends or our loved ones, sort of hovering, checking in. Um, We can also become increasingly insecure about others' affections for us and maybe afraid that if we let our loved ones out of our sight, then uh, who knows, they might probably leave us. Um, We might not introduce our friends or encourage them to get to know one another because we might fear that they, I don't know, that we might be left behind. Um, We might begin to secretly like it when other people are in a bit of a crisis because then this gives us a role to fulfill and guarantees that we will be needed at least for a while. Um, This is how every psychotherapist in some way gets their self-worth apart from their fee. It's about, yes, I am useful here. I am needed here. Um, And in this way, uh, we can struggle professionally in my case, but personally also in my case, to sort of let go of people. Um, A problem which really only gets worse as we continue to go down the rungs of the ladder towards our own, you know, sort of personal to hell, I guess. Um, That's how it can feel. So what we might do is we might look for tangible responses from others as a sign of success in our relationship. And as we become more fearful that we are not lovable, it takes more and more for for us to convince ourselves that people do love us and do appreciate us. And as you will see as we go down the, 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 the rungs of the ladder, we may even begin to evaluate the responses of others to our overtures of friendship and help, and, um, and only very specific responses will be recognized as love, right? You know, if you say this to me, well, that doesn't show that you show me that you love me, but if you, show, if you say this, which is more in line with how I would do it in this very effusive, very... Um, intimate-seeking, loving way, then that shows you love me. What we can do then at this um, rung of the ladder of two being is that we can almost start to expect people to know what we want and need. After all, haven't we made it our business to know what others need? So we may expect to receive phone calls or invitation to dinner or cards for every conceivable occasion or thank you notes or some form of reassurance that those people in our lives miss us or love us. Um, And only, you know, 
the specific response will then count. Uh, a card will never do if what we really want is a hug. And we can often deal with this by projecting our desire onto the other person. You know, like, you look like you could use a good hug, when in fact it's, I would really, really appreciate a hug. And more often, we will sort of simmer, I guess, with frustration and find more ways to be helpful. Like, look, look, you know, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. (laughs) Our superego will not allow us really you could say the selfishness of asking for what we want directly. Oh, I would, I, oh, I could really do with a hug. And in our pride, we sometimes cannot admit to the depth of our hurt and our need. And we might compensate for our growing fears by acting as if we were sort of holding court, right? You know, it can flatter us to be treated like a guru, someone to whom others come for advice about all sorts of personal matters. Again, you can see why so many twos become therapists, right? You know, um, is this not how the therapist in our culture is kind of set up? Naturally, others are expected to um, to keep us informed about everything significant in their lives, Um you know, we want to be the social switchboard through which every piece of information must pass. And, and, and we are frantic often to get positive feedback, to hear that our love and attention is valued and appreciated. To keep the flow of responses going, we stay in touch with old friends. We may spend a considerable amount of time maintaining our relationships, letting people know that we are thinking of them, worrying about them, praying for them, and so forth. And... Of course, this is incredibly thoughtful. It can start to manifest in more superficial ways. You know, we remember birthdays and we call frequently on the phone, but we begin to avoid getting tied down to the real needs of other people um, so that we can influence more people. And this is not always the case. I guess it also depends whether you're an introvert too or an extrovert too. Um, all of those factors come, come to mind. Um, but this can sometimes happen. And ironically, it is our over-involvement in the lives of others that actually takes a toll on our genuine obligations, especially if we have families of our own. So as twos, we can sometimes ignore our own families whilst we are um, being a kind of, you know, archetypal mother or father for everyone else. And so a problem with commitment surfaces, we might become fickle, not so much because we drop one person to become deeply involved with another, but because we are constantly looking for love from yet another source. Ah, this person's going to give me the love that I want, right? Because that person couldn't. And since we want to be loved and appreciated by everyone, we are also perhaps... um, you know, open for widening our circle of friends and acquaintances, doing yet more for others, inventing more needs to fulfill. And when those who depend on us turn to us for help, we find that, well, they find that we are sometimes no longer there, that we are off helping someone else. This can be a bit of a trap again with us twos. And so undeniably, we may overextend ourselves, helping too many people, sitting on too many committees, giving advice to too many friends, until we actually do begin to feel burdened and physically worn out by all our loving charity. Yet it is difficult for us not to be so involved, since that is of course how we maintain our sense of self. Furthermore, maybe certain 
histrionic qualities have begun to surface. And so we may even sacrifice ourselves for others, feeling that we suffer because of our goodness. We dramatize every ache and pain, every inconvenience and problem which our kindliness has cost us. Illnesses, little breakdowns, and hypochondria can become part of this picture. I guess this is the picture of the martyr, which we need to be careful as to not to slip into that role. The fact is, is is that at this stage or at this rung, we are not really as loving as we think we are. We have fairly strong egos, something we probably would not deny. You know, we've never claimed that we have no ego, but we're always well-meaning. We're always loving. But we also have aggressive impulses, um, which we cannot act on directly, as well as personal needs. And since we cannot risk, it would seem to us, being selfish and driving others away. No, I'm not going to, you know, do Christmas in this way that you expect of me this year, right? We may convince ourselves that what we do is never for ourselves, but for everyone else. I was just doing it for you, trying to make your life easier. And even the simplest, seemingly most spontaneous act of kindness can become uh, uh, at this rung of the two ladder of being a little bit loaded with a sort of ulterior motive. Unfortunately, we may feel that we will be loved only if we are constantly doing things for people. And in effect, what from the outside this could appear, um, even though it doesn't appear that way for us, we're sort of bribing others to, to some extent to love us. Of course, we want a sincere response, but instead of allowing others, let's say, to take the initiative, we prime the pump to get the kind of response we want. And the irony, of course, is that when we receive the response that we have maneuvered for, we never know whether we would have received it without our own prompting, so maybe the response doesn't necessarily seem as valuable or have as much um, worth to it as we thought it would. And this then, of course, will raise a new existential anxiety, which is, well, how much am I appreciated for myself? And in some way, we sort of create this um, issue for ourselves, and then we begin to chafe um, with that thought in mind. Okay, so the final rung on the sort of middle middle rungs of two being is what uh, Riso and Hudson call the self-important saint, uh, which doesn't sound that great, does it? Um, and in, in this case, um, you know, well, you can see how we can sometimes get there, right? Because we do so many good things. We have taken a well-meaning interest in people. We have sacrificed ourselves. We have taken care of people's needs. And we just simply want to be appreciated for it. And it seems to us that others at times can really, really take for granted the efforts that we have made. We feel that no one when we are inhabiting this um, this rung or on this rung, we feel that no one values us, that others do not think about our needs or sacrifice themselves for us in the way that we have. And we can maybe feel that others are ungrateful and thoughtless and perhaps even need to be reminded 
just how good we are, not perhaps not directly, but in some sort of indirect way. At least we're reminding ourselves of that. And the reason for this kind of behavior is that it is often difficult for us to appreciate ourselves and to keep our aggressive impulses under control unless our value is being reinforced by another person. So the person who was once so seemingly other-oriented, right, becomes a little bit more egocentric, really, under the veneer of modesty calculated to draw attention to itself, to itself, rather. And at this stage, we are now starting to become a little bit self-important, a little bit sort of patronizing, um, you know, kind of regarding ourselves maybe as indispensable to others, praising ourselves, and maybe even becoming shamelessly self-congratulatory, you know, still modestly, but modestly talking about uh, many of our virtues. And of course, we have all of those virtues, so it's not like we're um, inventing them either, are we? And we could say that vain glory is really the sort of the the sin here in some way. You know, we can become, and again, I don't even know if this is at a conscious level. Perhaps it's also at a sort of somewhat unconscious level. That's how it feels to me. You know, we, we can become very, very pleased with ourselves, um, you know, never really allowing an opportunity to slip up without reminding others um, of how much, well, people love us or how many friends we have or what sort of good works we have done. You know, imagine someone like me becoming friendly with someone like you. You know, it's almost like trying to get other people to feel that they're lucky in some way to have us in their lives. And it's a very double-edged sword because they are lucky to have us in their lives. Um, you know, at this point, we may even become a little bit kind of name-droppy in terms of the people we know, particularly if these are people of prominence. Um, uh, and again, it's it's not necessarily that we're seeking status. It's more like impressing others with how how important we are uh, as friends. You know, these are the people I know and you know me and therefore there is a connection to that status. Um, and again, it's it's very unconscious. So we may really, really very often not be aware of our own pride. We um, like to impress others um, as almost kind of selfless saints. And in so doing, we call attention to our virtues so that our good deeds don't go unnoticed. Um, and uh, I guess we're at this in this place um, really sort of trying to shine in the eye of the other person, to be acclaimed for our virtues and told what fine people we are, or even better, um, you know, maybe even overhear ourselves being discussed in glowing terms. And of course, we can proclaim our little human foibles, but God help anyone <laughs> who accuses us of any serious faults, right? The fact is that by now, others have become, to some extent, um, uh, appendages in some way to our own ego, um, little more than a sort of source of gratification for our pride. So pride is destructive 
to us twos in the sense that it prevents us from acknowledging the intensity of our resentments or the depths of our emotional suffering. We believe that were we to admit these negative feelings, we would probably be quite quickly abandoned. And in fact, just the opposite is true. While we may not want to admit to our growing hurt and rage, others will certainly feel it and will be repelled in some way by the mixed signals that we are sending out to them. And so it can be really helpful for open communication at this point um, rather than uh, doing what comes to us more naturally, which is to try and maintain our loving self-image, which in this case is a false self-image. And one way of looking at this is that, you know, the servant has become the master. The underlying wounds to our self-esteem and narcissism are often so deep that we need others to be grateful to us constantly. You know, a kind of unending stream of gratitude, attention and praise um, flowing in our direction. Not necessarily overtly so, but we're very tuned in, aren't we, to where that is there and where that is not there. And we may, again, not always consciously expect others to do favors for us as signs in a way of our importance to them and feel that others should repay us in some way um, for our previous self-sacrifices, real or imagined. Having done a good deed sometime in the past, um, we may feel that the beneficiary is you know, really in our debt. And the problem is, is that we may also grossly overvalue what we have done for others while undervaluing what other people are doing for us, particularly if it's not being done, shall we say, in that space where we um, transmit and um, manifest most of their value, which is in this heart space. What others can find particularly galling about us is that we might take credit for sort of lots and lots of all, you know, lots of positive stuff in, in that's going on for them um, as if, you know, as if we alone were responsible in some way for whatever success or happiness they have. And this is where we can start to feel that we are, and maybe we really are, um, in the eyes of the other person too. Um, So it's a sort of self-reinforcing belief that we are indispensable and that others could not have done what they've done without our help. You know, you really have to thank me for that, right? Um, And we we may not even hesitate to say so. At the same time, we are, as ever, uh, needy for affection and but maybe down sort of along the sort of lower rungs of the ladder we start to become a little bit less discriminating about where and how we get this affection our emotional needs are intense and all the more so in some way for being uh, repressed as they often are you know we, we might not like to show just how needy we really are and so for all of our pride and and even a certain kind of self-importance or a um, self-glorifying in some way, you know, we become willing to chase after anyone who gives us the slightest hint of the kind of attention and contact that we are looking for. And when we are, again, in these sort of uh, middle rungs or lower rungs, um, we can move into a kind of 
um, love that can be abusive or destructive, particularly towards us. People can take advantage of us in the ways that we are needily um, trying to search for and get the love that we want. And so what can happen is we can take on too many obligations and this can escalate into a sort of indiscriminate pursuit of love and attention. Um, Before, we often left our primary loved ones unattended because of all the friends that we had to help. And now we are eager perhaps to be part of any situation that promises to give us some attention or emotional connection. And, um, you know, I see this happening for myself quite a bit in terms of, I don't know, yeah, looking for that also through virtual means, Um, uh, being the person who... um, who says all the nice things and gives a lot of uh, positive affirmation and um, a lot of time and energy, say, to social media and interacting with people on social media and giving of myself again in that way in the hope that I am going to get back some love and care and attention for me. And under certain circumstances, we may also pursue various kinds of sexual escapades. Indeed, the ability to attract others sexually may become an indication of our own lovability. And in this way, we can resemble sevens uh, and also, I think, fours in our sort of scattered lack of focus. But while sevens are running around to avoid their anxiety, us twos are running around because we are magnetized in some way by any situation that even potentially offers to make us feel needed and loved. And so the people closest to us at this point um, in some way may feel abandoned um, because here's this you know, sort of particularly ironic turn of events, um, is that we are um, looking to others to give us that appreciation and attention and love and care uh, that we feel they, our closest ones, are not giving us. And unfortunately, we do not see uh, at this sort of rung of the ladder that our expectations of appreciation are probably, probably much too high And, you know, we're bound to be disappointed, aren't we? And even furious, as I sometimes am, if others do anything short of handing over their their very hearts, their very hearts and minds and their very lives in some way to me. But this does create a serious conflict because I become furious with others if they do not love me in return. And yet rehashing our claims to force others into loving us will also only likely drive them away, making us feel the bitter sting of rejection even more acutely because of our inflated self-importance. And often uh, what this can uh, mean in terms of how we deal with this is that we might even, you know, Um, feed our feelings in other ways. We might abuse food or alcohol or prescription medications, um, but often this can only make us feel a bit more helpless and even more unlovable and resentment smolders and then this becomes the prelude to manipulation, coercion and, I don't know, even forms of revenge, you know, getting back at that person for not loving us in the way that we loved them, but they couldn't love us 
or couldn't or wouldn't, often it's a case of couldn't, in terms of their personality, love us in that same way. So let's, mo- so let's move now to the lower rungs. This is when, as twos, we're really struggling and, um, you know, all the stuff that works well for us in terms of our uh, settings, our uh, operating system, um, that heart-based operating system and the personality structure which finds itself in that system when all of these things start to, uh, yeah, backfire, I guess, and cause more harm than good for ourselves and for others. And so um, on the seventh rung of the ladder, um, Hudson uh, gives us the, uh, the, the label of the self-deceptive manipulator. And I think even if we're not in this for, um, even if we don't experience this rung um, often, there will be, as with all of these rungs, um, different times when we kind of, slip we move up and down i think that's how it works with these ladders um even if we're on a a relatively healthy um um, good upper rung uh we can being hard types particularly slip down quite quickly and become the self-deceptive manipulator so how does that work well it usually takes a sort of background of some form of chronic abuse or a major catastrophe in our lives to precipitate a fall down to this kind of uh, level, this kind of rung. But when it does occur, we can take a particularly nasty turn for the worse. Our aggression, which has been, uh, you know, maybe, you know, kept under wraps, now becomes strongly aroused But because our aggression conflicts with our all-good self-image, it can sometimes become difficult for us to actually express how we feel at this point. And the upshot is that we have to express our aggressions indirectly by sort of manipulating others to give us the kind of loving response that we so desperately, desperately want. The irony here is that if we manipulate others, the response we receive, of course, will never satisfy us because the other person recognizes quite often that they are being um, pushed and prodded into a a sort of response and they're not giving it willingly. Not feeling that we are loved not only hurts us twos terribly, but it calls into question our whole value system, you know, the value system of love. If love does not have the power to get us what we want, then what does? Having loved and lost, we are furious quite often about it. This is how I feel quite often, um, very often, at the end of relationships. You know, um, furious that everything that um, I formed this relationship around, this apotheosis of love and care and attention and affection, well, the end of the relationship would indicate that this didn't this didn't work, and I am now furious. I'm even furious at love for this not giving me what I wanted. And I guess the answer here is that what passes for love at this rung of the ladder is probably not love, but a sort of form of codependency and need, although again, 
I would say, well, look around. Uh, how many relationships really, really are not in some way codependent and needy ones? But, of course, that's no excuse for <laughs> for um, for not being consciously aware when we do go there. Um, sometimes we can be so neurotic that we can't even recognize love, let alone give it or receive it. And while we're still using the vocabulary of love, because that is our vocabulary, um, our words become kind of self-serving, designed to get something from the other person without appearing to do so directly. And I guess another word for this is a form of emotional manipulation. And how do we do this? Well, we are maestros, maestros, when it comes to sort of without saying it overtly, making another person feel a bit guilty. You know, we can sometimes play other people like an orchestra, upping the level of guilt into a sort of disturbing crescendo or dampening dampening it down to a whisper as needed. And in this way, we sort of play people maybe against each other and even, you know, um, we're able, maybe even against ourselves. And it's shocking sometimes for other people to see how we how we manipulate in this way. Um, grown men and women, heads of households and corporations are reduced to emotional wreckage <laughs> by being kind of maneuvered, right, um, in this way. But by casting others into self-doubt and making them feel maybe guilty and confused, we, of course, throw others in this way off the scent of our own manipulations. We undermine others while presenting ourselves as the helpers, right, who can heal the pain that we maybe even have in some subtle way caused. We may prick at tender spots with one hand while soothing the hurt with the other. We might even put people down, um, maybe not directly to their faces, but and then bolster our self-confidence with sort of left-handed compliments. We might not let people forget that uh, you know, they have problems and we may even make their future seem a little bit more hopeless whilst promising to remain with them forever. Uh, you know, reopening old wounds and then rushing in to stitch them up. Um, we become, uh, you know, someone's best friend and unwittingly in some way their own worst enemy. It's very confusing. At the same time, we can still feel because this is what drives us, we can still feel compelled to do things for others, to be needed. Um, we are maybe not really of much assistance at this point, but we cannot stop ourselves, which inevitably leads to problems maybe with our own physical health, right? This might begin with certain forms of hypochondria, maybe getting sick allows us to take a break from wearing ourselves out for everyone without feeling like a bad or a selfish person. But over time, we continue maybe, you know, pushing away or stuffing our anger and frustration away. And uh, we might even abuse food, medications, etc., etc. And in some way, this can become for us a sort of substitute for love. And naturally, 
um, in this position, we are difficult to help and probably going to be fairly resistant to therapy. I know I certainly am when I'm stuck in that place. Uh, we put ourselves in a sort of morally superior position, no matter what we have said or done. And by insisting maybe on the absolute purity of our own motives, we will call those of others into question. No one can question our behavior or motives without ascribing evil mindedness in some way um, to themselves. And even tangible evidence has no effect on us since it can be dismissed as irrelevant to our good intentions. In this way, we can always be depended on to defend ourselves by appealing to good intentions and the laws of the heart to sanction anything we do. We may even use, if we are of a religious frame um, framework, uh, some sort of religious rationalization to extricate ourselves from guilt or responsibility for our actions. Um, making another's attempts at an objective analysis of the situation seems sort of niggling and petty by comparison to our, you know, giant hearts and our superior ethics which follow this higher Morality. You know, we've kind of turned the dictum love and do what you will into a license to do whatever we want or need in the name of love. And in some way, a lot of this kind of somewhat destructive behavior stems from the tremendous rage we carry within ourselves that we are suppressing um, in order to survive. You know, we start to feel that everyone is leaving us or has left us or will leave us. Um, and understandably, we are on on this rung of the ladder. We're, we're terrified of being left alone, but also furious, furious at the people we love for causing us to suffer so much, right? But again, we cannot quite often admit to this hatred or this particular form of hatred, even to the idea that we have this form of hatred, because I guess it would also be pulling away the curtain, as it were, um, on what is going on with us when we um, sometimes do things for other people. So self-deception I guess, is the defense mechanism which allows us to avoid seeing the discrepancy between the virtues we think we possess and our actual behavior. No matter how destructive we become um, through self-deception, and we're not alone in this. I mean, we're a self-deceiving species. Look around you. But through self-deception, we're able to interpret that whatever we do is good, right? Yeah, we believe, you know, we're doing our best for the planet as we um, continue to sort of actually do what's best for us, right? And in our minds, we always remain, I believe, I always remain in my mind, a well-intentioned, loving human being. My conscience is, by and large, fairly clear. So, it's important to understand that this, at this rung of the ladder, you know, we may even be somewhat at peace with being a little bit manipulative because we do not have to rationalize individual acts. With the help of self-deception, we have managed to rationalize our lives. And once we have defined ourselves as good, we are able to justify to a certain extent, right, whatever we say or do without feeling guilty and without feeling that we are no longer good. Others have caused us to suffer. Um, we are, in this, in this case, the helpless victims. 
Um, and, you know, um, maybe we may even have been um, victimized by others uh, in the past in very serious and damaging ways. And um, the wounds that we carry, the wounds to our self-esteem, can sometimes be so great that we do need to sort of rationalize our behavior to justify our existence. Further, we can be so afraid that people will not love us that we are desperate then to hang on to any emotional connection with others, even if it is somewhat painful and destructive. And so at this rung of the ladder, the sort of joyously radiant qualities so evident higher up um, the ladder, right, are nowhere to be found. We can be bitter, um, we can be in great pain, neither spreading joy nor experiencing it. Our behavior can be deeply frustrating and painful for those around us. Um, but at this point, our aggression is still primarily psychological. Um, but as you see, as you will see, as we go down the rungs of the ladder, this becomes more and more overt, as in the case of the eighth rung of the ladder, which uh, Hudson and Rizzo call the coercive um the coercive dominator. And here, the possessiveness um, we have seen in our type um, deteriorates into sort of a much more coercive demand for love from others on our terms. Um, and these can be quite neurotic terms. So what emerges here is a sort of delusional sense in some way of you know, hard to say it, but yes, a kind of entitlement, the feeling that we have an absolute right to get whatever we want from others, particularly in the realm of um, emotional nurturance uh, or emotional mirroring. And from this viewpoint, in some way, you know, everyone, everyone else owes us whatever we want because of the self-sacrifices that we have made in the past or are still willing to make. And in this way, we can become, you know, almost hysterical in our fear of not being loved, and we can become also very irrational and difficult to deal with. Our ability to conceal, as we did before, the depths of our need breaks down, and here we are beginning to lack the energy, really, to maintain that image um, but not just the image, the acts of selflessness in any consistent way. We're tired at this point of being selfless, and maybe that's not, not a bad thing. We're tired of being selfless, and but we now insist that others right, put our needs first, our egos, whose needs were formerly met indirectly through various kinds of service to others, are thrust into the foreground, making demands on others with a vengeance. And at this uh, level of the ladder, we can pursue our emotional gratification with a reckless abandon. We want love and we will turn to almost any source to find it. Often, when we are at this sort of level, you know, um, uh, we may also remind ourselves, if we are in therapy or out of therapy, that we have suffered in some way. We have maybe suffered a highly dysfunctional childhood environment, maybe even being physically, sexually, or emotionally abused. And as a result, um, uh, you know, we may then start to compulsively seek out whatever kind of connection um, that 
we had or didn't have uh, with our protective figure as children, um, whether it was abusive, violent, neglectful, um, those kinds of relationships that compulsively that we compulsively engage in are often frequently clear indications of our root anxieties. So when we really go down the, the, the lower rungs of the ladder, you know, we might start seeing ourselves um, becoming quite promiscuous and getting into sort of destructive affairs and other forms of sort of sexual acting out. Um, this is not that uncommon. Um, and nor are our emotional needs the only aspect of our personalities to be sort of exposed in some way, very painfully exposed. Um, you know, often we have been harboring very deep and very painful resentments for a long time. And now that our hatred and anger boils to the surface, well, what do we do? We express our contempt and rage at others in a variety of ways. And yet what remains of our fragile ego demands also that we justify our aggressions and keep our few remaining loved ones from deserting us completely. So we're playing this very kind of tricky game where we're telling other people, pushing other people away and telling them um, how much they've let us down. But at the same time, we don't want them to abandon us completely because we are very, very sensitive to rejection and abandonment. So our aggressions can then take the form of an unnerving and frustrating sort of knack for I don't know, belittling people, you could say, in the name of love. Um, in this way, we can make the most derogatory remark about another person, both behind their back and sometimes to their faces, in a way, I don't know, for their own good. This would be how we might see it, right? Um, and uh, again, kind of almost stepping into that authenticity for authenticity's sake of the four, we may also punish others, um, when we're in this place by withdrawing our love, well, you know, you can get along without me, see how you fare, that, that would be that idea. Um, and we may also make some quite dire predictions about others' possibilities without us in their lives, right? You're not going to be happy. You're going to fall right in your face without me, just you see. I suppose we can start to feel at this point that, well, we're free to do and say anything we please. You know, like, I can say anything I want to about this person because I love them, right? And at this uh, place on the lower rung of the ladder where it starts to look a little bit like a bit of a hell realm, um, let's face it, we're furious with other people and it often shows, you know, the veneer, if it was a veneer at, in some cases of love, uh, um, drops away and we may let loose a torrent of bitter complaints about how we've been treated, um, how our health has suffered, how unappreciated we are. You know, we might endlessly dredge up things from the past, harping on about how much we have helped people, how hopeless others um, uh, are without us and how we, you know, how we made the others who they are today. You know, remember what I did for you? Is this the thanks I get? That sort of thing. And of course, while our incessant complaints and disparaging remarks will bring us attention, it really is, and we know this, it's the wrong kind of attention. You know, it's the it's the attention of others' resentment and anger because they, of course, then act defensively towards us. And 
we're aware of this, and this then becomes a sort of source of fresh complaints. The vicious circle of recrimination continues. However, we feel that anything offensive or hurtful we may do to others doesn't really reflect on us, right, as deeply loving human beings, but is surely justified by the unloving treatment that we have received. Hence, we can do sometimes, you know, awful things to people without a qualm of conscience. At this rung, we are, we want to be loved so much that we may even attempt to coerce others to love us in the most damaging ways. You know, um, it's possible that some forms of paedophilia and child molestation have their roots here. And that, who knows, maybe even we might figure disproportionately in this kind of disruptive and destructive behavior. Um, remember, it's worth remembering that as twos, we typically enjoy the trust and admiration of family and friends. We may be, very often we are, we are the helpers, we may be teachers, we may be clergy, we may be psychotherapists, we may be daycare workers or nurses, and those whose words and integrity is usually not suspected by anyone. But at this stage, right, um, when we are super neurotic and we are maybe lacking certain satisfactory intimate relationships with our peers, it is possible that we will turn to, you know, start looking for love in all the wrong places, um, inappropriate sources of love to fulfill our emotional or our sexual needs. And since we are already at this rung, right, only at these lower rungs, extremely manipulative and self-deceptive, we are more than capable of taking advantage of the powerlessness of another person, of a child or of a sex worker or whoever the case may be. Indeed, our helplessness is one of the qualities which maybe even attracts us to these people. You know, um, we can comfort uh, the very inner child that maybe we end up terrorizing to some extent by playing the role of the savior once again. And which I guess brings us to that final, <laughs> the final rung of the ego ladder. Um, and this is one that we don't, um, we don't always get to, but um, I'm sure as twos, uh, there will be elements of this that you will have experienced in your life maybe briefly, maybe for even some extended periods of time. This is kind of, uh, I guess, in some way as painful as it gets. This is where um, it really, really is just hell to be a two, okay? And Riso and Hudson call it, uh, call this, um, uh, this rung the psychosomatic victim. So, as you can see, you can see where we're going, right? If demanding love from others has gotten us nowhere, then we can unconsciously try another avenue. We want to be loved. Uh, we want to sh be shown concern and to be appreciated more desperately than ever. And maybe some kind of physical illness might be a way to ensure that we receive the appreciation which we have been seeking. Um, so in some sense, you know, becoming a kind of invalid could be seen as the solution. An invalid either in terms of, um, uh, this could be 
physically, but it could also be sort of emotionally. Like, you know, I really, really need you. I can do nothing without you in some way. And again, this is this is the most unconscious. Um, there is no way that as twos we're sort of thinking, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm going to um, become an invalid. I'm going to become uh, the neediest person on the planet so that then finally, finally, you take care of me in some way. But this is how the ego, this is how the psyche gets what it wants, sometimes through extreme measures. And in this case, at this point, others have really no choice but to take care of us. Um, but the problem is, is that being cared for is not the same as being love, uh, being loved. And so it, it may be as close to love as we're going to get, but it's, it's not what we're really ultimately after. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to obtain the love of others, which has always been our fundamental desire, um, but by, in this way, kind of unconsciously going to pieces. Um, we fear being held responsible for our words and our deeds. We also fear that our aggression has maybe even revealed some hypocrisy about ourselves, which would make us, you know, God forbid, unlovable, our greatest fear. And we therefore might unconsciously attempt to escape responsibility for ourselves by having a kind of physical or even a mental breakdown, which will, in a sense, exempt us to some degree from further punishment. And in our minds, at least, uh, you know, physical or some sort of tortured mental suffering will at least conclusively prove many of our most important claims that we have made about ourselves, that we have been selfless, that we have been victimized by others, that we have worn ourselves out for others, and so on, all of which, of course, have some degree of truth to them. So our health, physical or mental, might fall apart because as formidable and willful as we are, the strain of living under these enormous contradictions becomes unbearable. The stress of trying to control and justify our hatred of others takes its toll physically. And, you know, we get a kind of angry, upset, hurt, heavy heart. And... Um, you know, at this point, our sort of superego is so toxic and so relentless that the only way we can feel we can get some attention is to sort of become, well, ill, I guess. But again, not in a very conscious way. We become ill and the illness is a signal to us. Ah, we have really slipped down. We're sort of on, on some of those lower rungs of the ladder. So psychosomatic illnesses are often the result of processes known as, you know, using this very kind of psychoanalytic language, um, hysterical conversion reaction. It sounds terrible, but it's actually a very simple process. So what it means is that we are converting our anxiety into physical symptoms. Um, and this is why you can see people, not just twos, but this is, you know, when we when we really, really lose contact with our um, uh, emotional life and our and what's really going on for us, right? We can start to have these mysterious illnesses, you know, skin eruptions, gastrointestinal problems, arthritis, high blood pressure, uh, all the diseases where stress plays an important role. Um, and 
we can be ill, you know, in lots of different ways. In fact, we may even get a little bit of a, I don't know, a masochistic enjoyment out of our, suffer- our suffering. But strictly speaking, this is not usually the case. We don't actually enjoy suffering um, because the suffering is very real. Instead, we might enjoy the benefits that suffering will eventually give us. Um, and Karen Hornet, I like to pronounce her name Horny, uh, just for fun, but um, I think it's Hornet, uh, the psychoanalyst and psychologist Karen Hornet describes this really vividly when she says, quote, suffering is unconsciously put into the service of asserting claims, which not only checks the incentive to overcome it, but also leads to inadvertent exaggerations of suffering. And that's an interesting idea that when we are suffering, we are also claiming something. We're trying to get something from another person, right? This does not mean, she continues to say, that that our suffering is merely put on for demonstrative purposes. It affects us in a much deeper way because we must primarily primarily prove ourselves to our own satisfaction that we are entitled to the fulfillment of our needs, right? We're entitled to the fulfillment of our needs, and therefore maybe the only way we can be entitled to the fulfillment of those needs is if we are suffering for those needs. We must feel that our suffering is so exceptional and so excessive that it maybe entitles us to some form of of help from another person. In other words, this process makes us feel that our suffering uh, makes us feel our suffering much more intensely than we would without it having acquired, shall we say, this sort of unconscious strategic value. And that's from Karen Horney's um, Neurosis and Human Growth. Physical suffering is also a sort of permanent guilt-instilling rebuke to those who have not provided us with the love and the appreciation that we've always wanted, right? It's a sort of uh, unending source of demands for attention and care and concern. And again, we, we all use this. We all do this kind of thing in some way. This is how we signal to other people, I need you. I need your love. I need your concern. I need some help here. A few final thoughts, not to leave us at the very bottom rung of the ladder, the sort of the deepest depths of um, uh, type 2 hell. And I really think that is a kind of hell um, in terms of the psyche. Um, As we look at all of this, we can see that us twos have conflicts. (laughs) I think that's that's the easiest way to say it. The, The conflict between our desire to love and our need to be loved, between our genuine self-esteem and our need to sort of manipulate others in some way so that we can then feel good about ourselves. The irony, um, a somewhat bitter irony perhaps, is that we can often compulsively bring about the very thing that we most fear. Uh, We want to be loved, we want to be loved, but we might end up being unloved um, or even disliked um, or at least unwanted in in this sort of um, needy or demanding or uh, emotionally brittle way that we sometimes show up um, for others or to others. Um, 
there's also this kind of darkly comic irony um, in the likelihood that, you know, the only person who may be attracted to the unenviable position of caring for, um, you know, us as we are at our at our most, most needy um, may be, of course, another two. And if the second two is as manipulatively self-sacrificial about the help which he or she gives us, then we're going to have a kind of somewhat pathetic duel of wills playing itself out between these two like-minded draining souls, a kind of macabre dance of death, which is why very often twos don't necessarily get together in relationships with twos. That's not the answer. Um, So... If we draw a lesson from our personality type, a lesson which we might want to give to other types because we all experience some of this, although we experience it in spades, um, is that us twos can be right in our belief about the value of love and yet wrong, in inverted commas, in how we sometimes end up loving others. Because if we intrude upon people with our love, we unwittingly prove that what we force on others is not love and for that very reason is probably doomed to failure. As soon as, let's say, the ego, and it does for all of us, masquerades behind love, love itself, certainly you know, any kind of dictionary definition of that, can eventually corrupt with all the consequences we have seen for ourselves and all the suffering that we have perhaps experienced for ourselves as twos.